morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Liz, welcome back to Rising. It's good to be sitting here with you. Good to be here. Like I mentioned yesterday, I'm filling in for Robbie, who will be back with you all tomorrow. Today, we're going to talk about the WHO's decision to investigate the origin of the pandemic further after they admitted that the lab leak theory needs a little more looking into. But first, U.S. stock futures moved slightly higher today following a plunge that sent the Dow into its lowest point since January 2021 as inflation and rising interest rates spark worries of a recession. Every stock in the S&P 500 went into the red, and some analysts say the market has lost over $10 trillion in value since the beginning of the year. Even crypto tanked amid the mess. Business Insider's Matthew Fox joins us now to make sense of what happened and what we can expect to see in the future. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Bree. Hey, Liz. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Matthew, uh, a lot of blame is being thrown around. There are obviously people on the right who are attributing everything that happens on Joe Biden's watch to Joe Biden, perhaps rightly or wrongly. There are people who are taking the longer view, saying that many of the things that happen in the economy aren't within the direct control of the current administration. To what do you attribute um, the, the recent stock failures? Uh, you know, I think a lot of the recent decline is um, it, it's all about Friday's CPI inflation report. So a lot of investors and analysts were expecting that report on Friday to show finally a deceleration in rising prices. And we didn't get that. Instead, we, we got signs that inflation is still hot um, and it could still continue on longer. So we're in a weird dynamic where now the Fed really has to combat that rising inflation with higher interest rates. And we got a pretty big signal yesterday that they're going to raise interest rates by 75 basis points tomorrow instead of the expected 50. So I think that's what really sent the market into a tailspin yesterday. There's been a really interesting narrative uh, that sort of coursed through a lot of parts of the left. And we actually saw the New York Times morning newsletter today do a really good job of sort of debunking some of this. But the narrative is basically that, you know, we're seeing extremely high record high corporate profits. And really, this is an example of of price gouging or of big corporations raising their prices significantly. Uh, and that's why Americans are really feeling the burn in their pocketbooks. What do you make of this? Uh, and do you have any words for people who sort of spread that type of theory? Um, you know, when in, when input prices rise, there usually is some room for corporations to eke out a little bit more profit by, you know, if inputs rise 2%, usually they could get away with the 25 3% price increase. Um, I think a lot of the supply chains have been completely exacerbated during the pandemic, during 2021, spilling over into 2022. So, Personally, I think it's probably a little disingenuous to blame this all on corporations um, and price gouging. I mean, this is all set by supply and demands at the end of the day. It's economics 101. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure there are some instances where some companies are taking more advantage of consumers than others. But to, to cast such a wide blanket with that type of rationale um, probably doesn't hold water when you dig a little bit deeper into it. Yeah, Matthew, I think the reality is that most people would agree with you, even people who are pointing to price gouging certainly aren't arguing that it's all price gouging. That kind of maximalist argument, I think, can obscure the reality that, you know, to your point, obviously, corporations frequently and in, are this, in, in this case are taking advantage of, uh, 
you know, the supply chain issues to eke out a little bit more profit at the top. But what's concerning to me is that there isn't more of a conversation about the fact that at the end of the day, a lot of these supply issues are still the result of COVID era issues, whether it's the oil refinery shutting down under COVID and having a long tail and opening back up or refusing to open back up because they don't see long term profits anymore as the world is forced out of using oil as a primary energy source just by the realities of the world, not because of any Green New Deal policy or anything like that. And if that's the case, if we're still dealing with the consequences of COVID, of you know supply from China not um, coming in, of the shipping dock backlogs, the fact that we've had you know decades of industrial policy where we've moved manufacturing overseas, that we don't have the storage capacity to hold things like baby formula, uh, you know, stateside the way we used to do. You know, what should the Biden campaign and Republicans in Congress be advocating for to address those root causes? Um, you know, industry by industry, you know, there are so many different factors, but the main driving factor behind all of these higher prices across many industries is oil prices. Um, so I think that is probably the, the number one thing to tackle. I mean, China is still experiencing rolling lockdowns, um, which is, is gonna continue to hamper the supply chain. We can't control that, you know, that, that's China's policy. But when it comes to energy, you have to realize that oil companies since about 2014 Overinvested in fracking in the Permian Basin and all all this domestic shale energy production, and because of all that overinvestment, they were rewarded with falling stock prices for literally six, almost seven years. Um, so I think the executives behind those companies have been conditioned to think, "Hey, what's the point of us trying to overinvest to try to boost production when it's only going to lower some?" lower prices and hurt our bottom line. So uh, it's a delicate balance. I think the, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I follow markets more than I do politics because you can't really do both <laughs> or you, you lose your mind. But um, I, I have to think that some of the expectations that um, we're gonna, you know, immediately transition to green energy is just not realistic. It's gonna take Realistically, it's going to take a couple decades to get to a full, you know, green energy grid. So I think the Biden administration um, probably has to warm up a little bit to working with these energy producers, maybe have a roundtable meeting and, and really advocate for them to start investing again. Um, but when you hear a lot about, you know, talk about them taxing windfall profits, uh, Exxon making more money than God, you know, Apple made more money than all the oil companies combined last year. So I think uh, I appreciate Biden, the realism here. Absolutely. If yeah, only I, it was I, Apple, Apple backlogs that were uh, causing the economy to, to collapse as opposed to these, these energy issues. But I, I take your point. But part of the issue is that Biden has, you know, to his credit, said, let's let's get these refineries open. And it is the profit motive that is disincentivizing people. To, to your point, like what you said, it doesn't advantage these companies from a strict profit perspective to start refining uh, uh, American gas again. Right. So. That's that's a place where some people on the left would say, okay, well, if the profit incentive isn't 
aligning with what's best for the American people, this is exactly where government should step in. But let me not force you to keep talking politics. Let me ask you back about the stock market. You know, Biden once touted the stock market for hitting uh, record after record on my watch. That's a quote. Um, and when asked about Wall Street's losses under the administration, the press secretary explained that the president is aware of the situation and, of course, blamed Putin's pike hike, price hike, rather. Let's watch. All the gains from President Biden's time in office have been wiped out. So, as you know, we're watching, we're watching closely. Uh, we know families are concerned about inflation in the stock market. Uh, that is something that the president is, is really aware of. And so, look, we face global challenges. We've talked about this. Uh, this is, we're not the only country dealing uh, with what we're seeing at the moment as it relates to inflation. You know, Putin, Putin's price hike, inflation uh, coming, coming out of a once-in-a-generation uh, global pandemic, all, all of those things play a factor. <laughs> So President Biden has made it clear he's putting inflation in the hands of the Fed, who continue to raise interest rates on Americans to balance out the central bank. But as our friends over at the Lever note, Powell has stated that his goal is to get wages down and limit business hiring demand. This comes as household wealth has taken a hit for the first time in two years. And we're learning that credit card debt in the U.S. has hit an all-time high of $1.1 trillion. How can you explain that raising interest rates works to combat inflation when we see trends like these? Um, well, <clears throat> the labor market is incredibly tight. For every unemployed person in America searching for a job, there's 1.9 job openings. So Powell's trying to reduce the tightness of that labor market to help put pressure on wage inflation because Wage inflation is one of the most stickiest parts of inflation. Um, once you, you know, it, it, it's just a matter of fact. So um, Powell can't control the supply chain issues that are driving the bulk of the inflation. But the one thing he can control is the wage side to some extent by trying to cool down the labor market. So it's really one of the only <clears throat> one of the only tools Powell has to combat inflation. Absolutely. And I mean, Powell is not a man who has really covered himself in glory. We've seen so many different Biden administration um, operatives, you know, calling inflation transitory. We saw that from, from Biden himself. We saw that from Jen Psaki. We saw that from Janet Yellen. We saw that from Powell. And it's very interesting uh, watching them attempt to sort of uh, figure out how to better communicate that to the American people who very much feel like when we've reached 8.6 percent year over year inflation, it doesn't really feel all that transitory. And they're very much looking um, for a longer term fix. Yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the Ukraine-Russia war really caught everyone off guard. I think you yeah. you could have made um, quite a compelling case pre that invasion that inflation probably would be transitory and that inflation probably would cool down over a period of months, if not a year, year and a half. But um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine kind of threw a wrench into everything. Uh, that's why we've seen oil prices literally almost double since that invasion. So that has just added so much extra pressure that unless you were a geopolitical expert rather than an economist, you probably wouldn't have uh, been able to predict. Yeah, Powell, you know, nominated by you know Donald Trump in 2017, you know, is not exactly a friend to the left. And I think one of the points that is being made in um, the lever piece is, you know, 
wages have not kept up with inflation. The inflation that we're talking about that's been so problematic and on the rise is not wage inflation. In fact, a main concern of many populists in this country has been the fact that we haven't had a minimum wage raise for the longest period of time in American history uh, since the minimum wage was founded, I think, in 1938. Um, and that so many people are struggling with housing costs, with food costs, with all of these other inflationary costs because wages have not, in fact, gone up. So can you help uh, viewers to understand why the focus, why the cure to this problem is trying to depress wages in the labor market as opposed to curbing some of the other kinds of spending, including the large aggregations of wealth at the very top, as we've seen both corporate prop profits and the individual profits of the very wealthy rise over the course of this uh, pandemic and economic crisis. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'd have to agree with you. I think my first job was in 2004 or five, and I, I think the minimum wage is like 20 cents higher than that is today, mm. than it was back then. It, it is insane. and it. it it does make sense that like, you know, wages should uh, be on the rise. So Powell is, is um, it's a delicate balance. I mean, at the end of the day, he wants wages to rise, especially for the bottom half, um, you know, call it even the bottom 90% of, of the country's population, just given how extreme the wealth inequality is. Um, but I, I would say one thing about the Fed is their words um, th th their words are, are ammunition. So they're able to try to talk down the market in an attempt to kind of uh, level out the playing fields, uh, which isn't the best way to frame it. But the stock market is down 20 percent. Uh, the Nasdaq's down 30 percent. Who owns the most stocks in this country? It's, it's the top 10 percent of Americans. So while um, they're taking the biggest, you know, meeting, so, right? so, they're, they're taking the biggest hit right now. Um, obviously, they still have a lot of wealth, so they're not, you know, we shouldn't feel sorry for them. But at the end of the day, I think about 50% of Americans own wealth, or sorry, 50% of Americans uh, have an interest in the stock market, but it's really concentrated in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in America. So to some extent, I don't think Powell's that concerned about the current stock market decline because it helps rein in the wealth effects and it helps, you know, it, it kind of helps uh, even out some of the wealth inequality we've seen build up over the past, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 plus years, even longer. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Matthew. Thanks, Bree. Thanks, Liz. And Liz, I look forward to hearing what's on your radar up next. Okay, Liz, what is on your radar today? Well, this past week, a 26-year-old Californian traveled to Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home with a pistol, a knife, and zip ties. He ended up turning himself in in front of Kavanaugh's house, admitting to authorities that he'd come to assassinate the justice. He told cops that killing Kavanaugh would, quote, give his life purpose, and that he'd been motivated by the Dobbs draft release, which indicated that the court would soon be overturning longstanding abortion law precedent. Over the next few days, the conservative media went wild, condemning the double standard they'd perceived. But it's not that the mainstream media failed to cover the threat at all. It's that they covered it by relegating it to a tiny tease on the front page, in the case of the New York Times, bearing the actual story all the way on A20. Online, there was one single story about the Kavanaugh plot. The Washington Post had a bit more coverage, but not by much. Conservatives and pro-lifers took to Twitter and the pages of National Review to ask, 
Is this how a foiled plot to assassinate the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have been covered? Or Sonia Sotomayor? Or any left-leading justice who has historically supported expansive rights to abortion? If this had been a liberal Supreme Court justice that someone came to kill, it would have been on the front page, said Bill Maher on his show this past week. And Bill Maher is hardly a paragon of virtue and pro-life sympathy. There's a case to be made that these publications should not glorify the terroristic behavior of madmen or amplify their causes by giving them prominent placement. There's a case to be made that since pro-life extremists have violently targeted abortionists in the past, most notably a spate of killings in the 90s, that such violence stems from radicals on both sides. But this comes on the heels of an awful lot of liberal rhetoric that claims protesting outside of justices' homes is fair game. And it comes on the heels of reports of political violence directed at pro-lifers, something you wouldn't know about if you were just reading the New York Times. Molotov cocktails thrown on Mother's Day damaged a pro-life lobbying group's office in Madison, Wisconsin. If abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either, read the graffiti left on the building. A Christian pregnancy center in Buffalo, New York was firebombed soon after. Just weeks before, Oregon Right to Life had been attacked with Molotov cocktails. The arson plot there, however, was foiled. On June 3rd, a crisis pregnancy center on DC's Capitol Hill was vandalized with red paint and the words, Jane says revenge. That same day, pro-choice extremists in Illinois burned down an entire crisis pregnancy center there, causing more than $250,000 worth of damage. On June 6th, a crisis pregnancy center in Asheville, North Carolina, had its windows broken. Most of the graffiti mentioned in these situations can be attributed to a national extremist group called Jane's Revenge that has taken credit for many of these attacks. Students for Life representatives have told journalists that college campuses have gotten nastier in response to the leaked Dobbs draft, with male pro-life activists on campus being told by pro-choicers that they're fans of rape or encouraging rape or other profoundly ugly things. And in both Los Angeles and San Francisco, protesters in Handmaid's Tale robes stormed into Catholic Mass, interrupting the sacred time of prayer when religious people are communing with their God. But why haven't you read about this in the New York Times? Why hasn't this recent surge in pro-choice antagonism been documented? Though arson and Molotov cocktails and other forms of property damage are indefensible, protests outside of justices' homes or protests in mass are perhaps uncouth or improper, but in most cases are First Amendment protected activities. Mere antagonism is not illegal and protecting speech rights is of the utmost importance. When free speech rights are protected for one side, we can rest more assured knowing that they'll be protected for the other in the future. Speech rights ought to be revered even in the most extreme of circumstances when spoken by the most extreme of people. But do note that the media is falling asleep at the wheel when they fail to cover these types of events. It would be easy for right-wingers to allow the chronic inconsistencies of coverage, the chronic media bias, to fuel some sort of reactionary crusade and retreat to, retreating, to, retreat to reading only right-wing sources. But I, for one, legitimately want the New York Times and others like them to get this right. I don't want them to squander their credibility. I take no joy when I see it happening. The terrible trade-off is that you can either gravitate toward hackish right-wing sources, many of which are indiscriminate in who they'll quote, with non-existent fact-checking departments and a penchant for sensationalist coverage, or you can read the much more credible, much better vetted news purveyed by the New York Times. But it's a newsroom that's probably 95% Democrat, that's likely 95% pro-choice. This homogeneity necessarily shapes their coverage, and on issues like abortion, it not only shapes how they cover it, but what they cover. 
On the abortion issue, as we prepare for the Dobbs ruling to be released sometimes over the next two or three weeks, note that neither right-wingers like Tucker Carlson nor left-wingers at the New York Times legitimately present, represent how most Americans look at the issue. Most Americans are shockingly moderate, even paradoxical in their views, saying they broadly support abortion in the first trimester up until week 12, but don't think it should be allowed during the second or third trimesters. Most Americans are unaware of the laws that we currently have on the books, laws which are, in many states, actually quite out of step with other Western developed nations. Greece, Italy, Germany, Belgium, Denmark, Norway, Finland, Iceland, and many others only allow abortion up until the end of the first trimester. France allows abortion until week 14, as does Spain. In New York, you can get an abortion until week 24 when the fetus is viable. You can get an abortion up until week 24 in California, until week 24 in Illinois, until week 25 in Virginia. But you wouldn't know any of that if you merely paid attention to the loudest voices on both sides. Both sides beclown themselves at best, and at worst, engage in all kinds of nasty and escalatory behavior that raises the temperature on this already heated issue. Pro-lifers ought to take seriously how overturning existing abortion precedent and returning the issues to the states means pregnant women will be despicably scrutinized and surveilled by a state that's newly empowered to investigate their reproductive health. With the advent of easy-to-take abortion pills like misoprostol and mifepristone and highly accessible antibiotics, and the fact that abortion is actually a fairly simple procedure, we do not have to fear the old 1960s era of back-alley abortions. But we do have the state to fear and the ways the burden of enforcement will necessarily fall harder on poor women than on rich ones, as we so frequently see in our flawed criminal justice system. But pro-choicers, who populate almost the entirety of the mainstream media, ought to take seriously how they squander public trust and betray their ethical commitments when they fail to even mention arson attacks on crisis pregnancy centers. They ought to consider how they squander public trust when they fail to devote very much airtime to foiled plots on the lives of conservative Supreme Court justices. They ought to ask themselves whether they treat these incidents the same way where the political affiliations reversed. They may think they're pulling the wool over people's eyes, but people are a lot smarter than that and notice the dirty obfuscation. Even if viewers and readers don't believe that conservatives are correct in their beliefs, they surely notice the double standard and begin to consider what other things might the mainstream media be lying about? How else are they failing us? Yeah. There's a lot for you to disagree with yeah, there. No, <laughs> I mean, not, not necessarily. So for the to the first issue of the coverage of this, mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of these things are very subjective. You, to your point, there was a front page article in the New York Times about this. Well, you're, no, no, no. There was concerned. a little box on the front page. Right, but and then most stories start on the front page and move on in the rest of the... Significant stories actually have a bar, because this didn't have like a whole bar no, on the front page. I appreciate that, but yeah. a lot of people would say, you know, a front page... A, a note on the front page of the, of the New York Times is not ignoring the story, even if we think that there might have been more coverage if it was, were targeting a liberal judge. I think that's perfectly legitimate. Yeah. I certainly have no disinterest in covering the story because I, I think, frankly, it's not as salacious as some of the other things that have been going on, in part because the guy 
called him, turned himself in. Yeah. There doesn't he was seem to be quite as, mentally disturbed. Right. right. There's not the same proximate threat as in some of these other instances. And I think a lot of other people might also say, okay, well, how much coverage has has there been of the what 31 pa Patriot? What are they called? The Patriot Front. The Patriot Front members who were pulled over in the Woodward Park. coverage. CNN. I was watching CNN on my flight over to D.C. and it was like hours and hours and hours well, the, of the wall, question, wall. The question isn't whether CNN covers it; it's whether the conservative papers yeah. are doing the same way. So I do think that there are obviously a very deeply politicized and bifurcated news. But bear in mind that you just said CNN versus the conservative papers. Right. The New York Times purports to be the paper. But they're not. I mean, like no one's pretending. No one's pretending. But I think it's, an, it's important for us in the media to, to note that like that is how they brand themselves. If they branded themselves as uh, a leftist or a liberal paper of record, uh, that would be a different thing. But they're they're saying they're saying they're one thing when in reality I don't think that's really true. And so they they do have a different obligation when well, that's how they self-identify and self-describe. Is painting itself as politically right explicitly or do yeah. we just all understand that it's politically right oh, no explicitly? I mean I think that's part of the deal absolutely I think that's how they package themselves mm. I mean I think that but anybody who has that many Mike Lindell my pillow ads is like obviously <laughs> but, but I, I'm trying to parse the difference between yeah. what we all understand like what we all are understanding about the New York Times and how people still present themselves as giving the facts like delivering the news ultimately all of these institutions are presenting themselves as news organizations. But that I don't want to belabor the point because I, I don't disagree. My, my, mm -hmm. my chief point is that I, I think that you're right that there's obviously biased coverage, but as you go down the list of the um, crisis center uh, attacks that haven't been covered, mm -hmm. I did a quick Google and apparently there's been a rise in anti-abortion violence on, on abortion centers. There was an Ohio man in February yeah. that pled guilty to Which threatening an abortion patient. Which is stuff that you can much more easily find. No, but I never heard of it. My, my point is that I yeah. also don't see any of this coverage. I mm. personally have not consumed any of this <laughs> across the board. And I think that there's a larger conversation about what is considered to be newsworthy in these papers. I'm not entirely convinced that this coverage of this particular issue, a particular issue is, is super duper partisan. Hmm. I also think that you make well, a good on. point. So I'm curious sure. though, how do you, how do you think it's not super partisan if like, like for example, like I'm a pro-life person, um, I'm also like 23 weeks pregnant and so, you know, it definitely sort of colors the way I think about these things. But I don't think there's, I mean, based off of polling my friends at these newsrooms then also looking at some of the, you know, internal journalist sort of watchdoggy type organizations, um, you know, they, these newsrooms are not comprised of pro-life people. How many people in media do you meet who are pro-life who aren't necessarily even explicitly conservative, but I'm, I'm even talking like Democrat pro-lifers or secular pro-lifers? How many of them are employed by these major yeah, well, newsrooms? I mean, to your own point, uh, a majority of Americans overwhelmingly support abortion through the first trimester, which is part of why this Dobbs holding is so frustrating yeah. because the underlying Mississippi law, which many people were concerned about, ultimately was only a 15-week abortion ban, which was in line with, to your point, what most, mm -hmm. most of the rest of the you know, Western world already has on the books. In fact, a fun historical quirk is that one of the reasons America has a longer um, period of time where women can seek abortions is because we don't have the same healthcare system as other countries. And the justices in you know the early 70s were like, well, American women just need another beat to be able to even access an abortion provider. So I, I'm I with mean, you that 
even though there is a pro-life newsroom, the majority of Americans in those, those who are identifying as pro-life are actually very much in line with you and the rest of the world and only wanting really like a 15-week access to abortion. And the Supreme Court actually went further than what was being demanded, uh, what, what the underlying case was in Dobbs in Mississippi. Well, I mean, the interesting thing with the Supreme Court is that it's, it's, it's a federalism issue now. Like, it's being returned to the states, and we have 13 states with trigger laws on the books, which yeah. basically mean abortion will be illegal in those states, yeah. uh, with exceptions, actually, notably for all of the trigger laws that have been written, exceptions are there for the life of the mother, and, and many cases due to rape and incest as well. But I mean, one of the things that I just keep coming back to is even if the majority of Americans are um, in favor of first trimester abortion being allowed and opposed to second trimester abortion being allowed, if the people who are shaping the news and shaping the coverage and the things we read and consume about this, uh, even in a straight news manner, if they're not engaging with actual pro-lifers in their day-to-day -day lives or in their workplaces, how can we be sure that bias isn't seeping in? As a pro-lifer, I notice that bias constantly, and I have hordes and hordes of friends, journalist friends on Twitter who also notice this exact same thing, and I'm not happy about it, right? Like, I don't want to have to read the Daily Wire to get abortion coverage. I want to read the New York Times yeah. because I trust their fact-checking department. I guess I'm resisting the characterization of the people at the newsrooms as having a left of center position on abortion because they aren't pro-lifers, I think to your own argument. I think most of them are probably in favor of abortion being allowed in second trimester and possibly third trimester as well. But that's not, I mean, that's not what the polls say, even per your own admission. I think that, I, but I mean, we know journalists skew a little bit further left. And I think in general, like we have newsrooms that are in places like DC and New York. In New York, I can walk into an abortion clinic right now and get an abortion. And the vast majority of people I know who are New Yorkers are in favor of New York's law staying exactly the same. Well, I, I'm not, I don't know anything about how far <laughs> along you are, what New York laws are. But the point of the matter is, I think overwhelming public opinion actually is, you're right, yeah. not that far left. And I, I don't think it's necessarily fair to make claims about what people at newsrooms who are often very misinformed about what the abortion <laughs> laws actually are in the books and what exists in other countries, what their views are, the conversation very much is often just centered around Roe. And people mm -hmm. want to protect Roe and polls are about protecting Roe. And Roe protects, you know, you know, through the first trimester with exceptions, et cetera, through the third third trimester. Yeah. But again, we're talking about rape, incense, the health of the mother, all of these other yeah. kinds of things. And sometimes I think the real issue, I agree with you that there's some concern about how this is reported, but the real issue is that we don't disaggregate what it means to have access to abortion and all the shades within that, and it becomes this black and white issue, in part because the Supreme Court has taken this black and white stance and taken what should be a conversation about a 15-week abortion ban that the legislator tried to pass in Mississippi mm -hmm. and turned it into a referendum on whether or not you can protect the right to choose at all in the 13 states with trigger laws in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we'll have more rising after this. <laughs> Former President Donald Trump released a 12-page rebuttal following day two of the House Select Committee's hearings about January 6, 2021. Among uh, calling the committee a, quote, kangaroo court, he also said it was Democrats' way of distracting Americans from the problems plaguing the nation and the establishment's way of keeping him from running for president in 2024. Here's a bit of what he wrote. Quote, as we near the midterm elections, we're watching the swamp creatures circle the drain as true Americans step up to replace the corrupt establishment with patriots who will fight for our freedoms. The establishment is holding on as tightly as they can to their power as they watch it slip from their grasp. The House Select Committee has been investigating the events to the Capitol riot, specifically what role Donald Trump played in it. 
Democratic strategist Crystal Knight and White House reporter at Real Clear Politics, Philip Wegman, are here with us to weigh in. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. All right. So we heard a lot of folks on kind of in, among the leftist crowd say, no one's going to watch this. Nothing really matters. Obviously, there are people who are sympathetic to Trump who, for similar, for, for very different reasons, said very similar things. And I wonder, let's start with you, Crystal. Are you surprised by the way the, the hearings have been conducted and what the public reception has been so far? No, I'm not surprised. I think, you know, the first night, which was last Thursday, there were 20 million people who tuned in. I think that it's smart on the hearings or the committee's behalf to air that in prime time so that as many Americans can tune in and really understand what unfolded, how, where, and when it happened. Um, I'm not also surprised by people's reaction. I think lots of Americans who maybe saw clips or heard, you know, here and there pieces of, a, of, the, of the actual events, they were able to see un, you know, unseen footage that really unfolded and it showed the gravity of just how um, uncivil this unrest unfolded at the Capitol. And so I think that the committee has done a good job with really just showing the interviews as they took place over the last 18 months so that many Americans can hear for their own eye, hear from their own ears and determine what they believe is the truth. And really, we can get beyond this point and not have to have this type of insurrection, this type of failed coup happen again, because the facts are being laid out before everyone to to watch. Hmm. What, what are the kind of facts? And maybe I'll put this to you, Philip. Is there is there are there is there new stuff here that you think is going to change people's minds about what what happened? Because I, I I saw I think it was in the New York Times maybe yesterday or today. David French I believe was writing that you know he lives in a, a heavily red part of the country and when he talks to his neighbors there's a real information gap between the things that the average Republican knows and the things that the average Democrat knows and that there are real substantive details about what happened around one six and the lead up to one six that people who are perhaps disinterested or don't believe it was really a problem. It's just really a knowledge and information gap. Does that gel with your experience? And do you think any of these hearings will start to, to close that gap? I'm not sure if David French is the best barometer for <laughs> uh, opinions outside of the Beltway. Uh, certainly all of us read, read his columns. But um, you know, setting that aside, I think that what uh, the January 6th committee is doing currently, and we're going to find out um, if there are more details, certainly that there have been some, but these are these are comprehensive hearings. Uh, what they're essentially doing is they're packaging a lot of the things that we already knew. For instance, um, there's testimony from the former Attorney General Bill Barr, where he, in no uncertain terms, uh, called some of these allegations that the election was stolen BS. I, I don't think that uh, you know the, the Trump White House thought that that's what they were getting in the deal when they quote unquote activated Bill Barr. Mm. But uh, you know he said, look, these claims about a, a stolen election uh, that they did not have merit. And the January 6th committee, what they essentially were able to do was 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 package that in a way uh, that it could be seen you know, outside of, of just the Beltway, that, you know, the 20 million Americans who tuned into this were going to be able to hear that message. 
despite the fact that this is something that, that Barr has been saying uh, since at least last December, I think, when he, he detailed uh, a lot of that in, in uh, his, his latest autobiography. So uh, I, I don't know if this is going to break through the noise and you're going to have, um, you know, suburban moms at soccer practices talking about uh, what happened 16 months ago uh, at the Capitol versus the uh, gas prices that they're, they're paying, you know, earlier that afternoon. That said, uh, again, what the committee is accomplishing is they are putting all of this information together uh, in a more digestible package that people can at least access more easily. Philip, what what impact do you think this has, if any, on sort of the dynamics that we'll continue to see going forward among the right? I think, you know, we're, we're gearing up for for midterms and for really interesting splits to sort of emerge. Um, you know, there's definitely from from the Trumpy diehards, there's a lot of Liz Cheney directed hate. Uh, what dynamic uh, inter-party do you think this has? Or well, what it's interesting because you, you started the segment a little bit ago by reading from Trump's rebuttal, where he essentially says the establishment is doing this because they don't want me to run in 2024. And the thing is, he's right. I mean, it, it, regardless of, of how you define the establishment. The thing is, though, um, you know, whether it was going to be focusing on the riot at the Capitol uh, or focusing on the chaos of the pandemic, the establishment, however you define them, um, certainly doesn't want Trump to get back into this. And they would be talking about um, a different kind of chaos, maybe relitigating the impeachment trials uh, rather than than the violence of that day if, if he hadn't said, all right, well, I'm going to walk down there to the Capitol with you. So I don't think it's necessarily you know, super helpful to, to parse motives here. Uh, but to your, your question about the midterms, the, the reason why I think this is relevant is you have all of these Republicans who are, you know, they're more than eager to uh, beat Joe Biden up fairly or unfairly on every challenge that the country is facing. And now with January 6th, you're not just having a re-examination of what happened um, on that day. You're having a re-litigation of the former presidency. And at a moment when Republicans are eager to really stick it to the White House to take advantage of the fact that I think, you know, 71% of the country says we're heading in the wrong direction, Trump is saying, yeah, this is because Democrats, you know, that they don't want to focus on all those challenges. And it's also because, you know, that they hate me. Um, he has inserted himself into the mix. And uh, I'm not certain that that's necessarily a, a value add for Republicans who mm. want to take back Congress. Well, Philip, to your point, Trump continues to claim election fraud, which is false. Uh, a star witness in yesterday's hearing was none other than his former Attorney General Bill Barr. Here is what Bill Barr had to say. I told him that the stuff that his people were shoveling out to the public were bull was bullshit. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit. And, uh, you know, he was indignant about that. Some of the notable moments included when Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney said Trump took advice on election results from a, quote, inebriated Rudy Giuliani. And perhaps equally, if not more shocking, was the revelation that, it, that Trump and one of his PACs profited off of election conspiracy theories to the tune of $250 million. What do you guys think of these revelations? Um, Crystal, I'll, I'll, I'll pose a question to you. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting that his his innermost circle really told him that there were no um, claims of, of election fraud. There was no evidence of election fraud, but yet they still allowed this coup, this plan, this this plan of the big lie and the plan of the coup to move forward. So those are two of the big questions that I have to ask Mark Meadows and other folks who were around him. If you absolutely knew that there was no evidence of election fraud, why did you allow the president to continue pushing this lie? And other Republicans, quite frankly, continue to push this lie. Further, why did you allow the president to move forward with inciting a riot, with encouraging people to go and storm the Capitol, if you knew, again, that there were no, there was no evidence of election fraud? So I don't think that the president is the only person that's liable in this situation. There are many other people who were responsible, just as responsible as he was, although he is the sitting president. But to know and to discover through these hearings that so many people told the president no, knew that there were no, you know, there was no evidence of election fraud, and yet all of these things continue to take place, that is deeply disturbing, not only for what happened, but also for members of Congress who participated or had some allegiance to this president during that time. I'm glad you brought up Meadows because I think one of the really uh, interesting revelations uh, was not only Meadows a degree of knowledge and sort of complicitness in this, but all, then also the testimony they collected from Ivanka Trump, who was also very much admitting to, to this big lie. And I'm very curious to see what types of consequences um, in, in public life and in political life uh, these people will, will incur. I, I should hope that there should be some uh, extremely significant squandered credibility, but I don't want to be overly optimistic when looking at the state of the current GOP. So. Yeah, I think it depends on if they decide to kind of forcefully, more more explicitly come out against uh, Donald Trump. We, I think we've seen that Democrats will rehabilitate and give an MSNBC show to almost anybody who's critical <laughs> of Donald Trump. They're trying to make Liz Cheney president now uh, a, Demo a Democratic the Trump MSNBC slot. What do you think of that, Philip? How do you think this is going to play out going forward? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure if, uh, if if MSNBC is Ivanka's speed, um, but this is this is something that's really interesting, right? You have this entire slate of people who were in the administration, and from their testimony, it's clear that they should have known better. Um, but that is sort of undercut, right? By the the testimony from you know Liz Cheney, excuse me, that that, that soundbite from Liz Cheney where she she says you know well a clearly inebriated Rudy Giuliani, and the reason I say that is it's almost like you know are we going to note that you know this was kind of nefarious and there were people who you know should have said something but didn't or was it just um, you know not this big you know mastermind plan but instead you know uh, a, a lawyer who's passed his prime and has has dipped too much in, into the pinot um, <laughs> and so it's, it's sort of a question of like you know is this a a you know cunning villain or just an incompetent fool but the thing here that i think actually is really interesting is you know maybe david french has a take on uh what these people in flyover country might say but they, they might not be following all of the questions about insurrection or, or who did what when but that question about who profited from this mm. i think that if you just sort of gut check people on the basic question of you know is it fair for you know the former president to have raised these hundreds of millions of dollars uh ostensibly for a legal defense fund but maybe that money wasn't used for uh, a 
defense fund or, you know, to combat some of these concerns about, you know, the, the election. That's something that I think will make people angry, um, even if they are just tuning in ever so casually to these hearings. Hmm. I think that's a good point, Philip. Uh, Philip, Crystal, we appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you. And we will be back with more Rising after this. The Texas Department of Public Safety asked the state's Office of the Attorney General to prevent the public release of body camera footage from the mass shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde. This is in part because the Department of Public Safety argues the footage could be used by other shooters to, quote, determine weakness in police response to crimes, Vice News reports. The Office of Texas Attorney General Kim Paxton will review audio and body camera footage recorded by the department to determine if any of it can be released. Vice News says this is according to a letter the department sent Vice's tech magazine and video channel, Motherboard, in response to a request they filed asking for photographs, audio, and video records. Okay, so if the, if the excuse to not release it is that people are going to learn how to get the better of the police, <laughs> That's a kind of a, a kind of a self own. That's a kind it of a something admission. about the sophistication of police tactics. Exactly, which we don't really need video camera footage to show yeah. us how poorly the Uvalde Police Department failed here. But also, I would like to know a little bit more in the way of specifics about what that even means. I mean, the thing that's so despicable here is that this is just such an obvious example of cop malfeasance. Um, every single part of this, every single new detail that emerges shows just how much this was botched, not only by the local cops but also by the SWAT team that apparently this extremely small town has, yeah. um, by Border Patrol. Like, the the degree of malfeasance here is astonishing. And then you think, okay, well, what's the fix for this type of police abuse of power? Body cameras. But then when we actually implement uh, use of body cameras, we see consistently the two right. issues with it are either the body camera wasn't turned on, classic, or the body camera footage gets returned to the police department. And so internally they're reviewing it and right. then perhaps doctoring it before actually releasing mm -hmm. it. And so this thing that's supposed to be the stopgap, this measure to improve accountability and transparency is nothing of the sort. Yeah. It's pathetic. It also seems to me that they could release, they could, you know, show the footage to journalists who could talk about it and report on it without necessarily revealing it to the public if there are concerns about it being gruesome and, or families of the kids not wanting it to be out. I could understand some of those concerns, but that doesn't prevent people from being able to review it and report and write about it. There's also this implication that some people have been talking about that because of one of the statements shortly after the shooting was awkwardly worded to suggest that, you know, all of the Basically, people are arguing that maybe the real reason they want to release the, sh the footage is because some of the cops were responsible for shooting the kids in the melee. And if that is true, that, be... that kind of really puts a different shade on all of these conversations and casts them as rather pretextual on their face. Yeah. I, I struggle with that because I, I just don't think we have sufficient enough evidence right now sure. to be able to know that. Um, there, there is the really horrifying reality, though, which is that it seems as though the story from, from the police department has changed at every single, uh, you know, it's almost like every single few hours in the aftermath of this or every single few days now, um, the story completely changes. Yeah. And so we're very we're very much unable to figure out what happened. And from, from what we can piece together right now, it does seem like they waited more than an hour to actually enter the school building. Uh, they alleged that they were attempting to get in or they alleged that they were waiting for SWAT and for tactical gear. They, they have all these different excuses. But one thing that we do know they were doing in that interim 
is uh, handcuffing parents, yeah. putting parents on the ground, zip tying parents, and preventing parents from entering into the school, which is something that I think many parents are, are self-sacrificing yeah. and would do absolutely anything to save the lives of their kids. Uh, parents were attempting to do that, were attempting to rescue their kiddos. And we also don't know the degree to which this incredibly long police response made it so that the death toll was actually higher because kids who could have gotten medical, medical care, treatment. who needed yeah. that urgent medical care, didn't get aid rendered. Yeah. What's funny, not funny, what's <laughs> tragic, tragic is that yeah. we know so much already, you know, over the past few weeks, we, so much has come up that is so damning that it almost feels like what more could the, <laughs> the, the videotape show us that that would be even further damning. And part of me thinks that what we'll see is we'll have a visualization of the contrast between the rounding of a parent outside and a kind of meandering through hallways doing a lot of nothing that will really put a fine point on how there was time and space for them to act because the perception i think for some folks is that oh everyone's panicked and running around and there's a sense of urgency and, and, and lack of clarity about what's going on what might be really difficult to watch is a, perhaps a relative amount of like calm and kind of uselessness as people walk around looking for the key to open the door and finding the administrator who had access and all of this kind of nonsense. The key component was one of the most jarring parts of yeah. this report to me, this idea of like, you know, almost an inability. It's almost like such a, there, there's like a terrifying comedic quality to yeah. it where it's almost, it's, it's like, like real life it's like, yeah. is stranger than fiction. Yeah. And this, yeah, there's this like complete banality yeah, of. exactly. It's, it's honestly very horrifying, and I'm curious about the degree to which that factors into the incredibly slow response time. It seems like they really need to just pick a story and stick with it. Ideally, the actually true story, but that might not be the one we get. Yeah, I mean, many people have pointed out that we have story after story of no-knock warrants mm -hmm. and police busting down people's doors to their home and rushing in and shooting people and causing all of this havoc. Situations police where they showed exigency as opposed to this one. 100%. <laughs> We know that police can knock down doors. Yeah. Like, I'm still waiting for an explanation of why. Right? Rims, SWAT <laughs> team. cats. <laughs> why, why were we looking for a key for all of this time? Yeah. And, and the other thing about the parents is I could appreciate a world where the police are really mounting a, 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 an attack plan to get into the building and, like, minimize harm. They're really trained special unit, unit and having a parent in the mix puts that parent at danger and interferes with the busting down at the door and getting yeah. the kids safe. But in a world where the police, it's increasingly clear we're not doing anything, mm -hmm. but restraining the parents. I think, again, that contrast between the two is what is so um, unforgivable. You know, I understand yeah. saying this is a professional operation. Keep the parents out. We can handle this. Don't worry. But if you're not going to handle worry. it, <laughs> if you're not going to handle it and you're going to stop the few people who actually have the courage, especially when the police are saying, well, we didn't want to go in because it was an active shooter situation. There was a fear that we would be shot is basically yeah. the line. Well, that is your job. And it is really disgusting to hear that a parent is willing to put themselves in a hard way and harm's way when you have a professional obligation to do so and we're not willing to do so. I mean, the revelation that parents are in many cases um, less cowardly and much more brave than cops are is not particularly right. surprising to me. <laughs> Though I don't want to you know, disparage cops overall. Like There are plenty of examples of people who actually do their jobs well, um, but also a lot of systemic uh, trouble in so many police departments all across the country. I mean, one of the things I keep going back to, because I always consider incentives, like what incentives could be at play, one of the things I frequently go back to is this sense of if this town had not only a normal police force, but also a SWAT team, mm. to what degree, despite having gone through trainings to uh, handle these types of situations, 
to what degree were these cops basically saying, oh, well, we have specifically designated people uh -huh. with specifically designated equipment who are the types of people who ought to be intervening in this uh -huh. type of situation, and thus we ought to pull back and wait for them uh, as opposed to having it be an all-hands-on-deck type thing. And I sort of wonder if this very small town hadn't been equipped with a SWAT team, yeah. might the police response have been less less impotent and a yeah. little bit stronger? Too, too many cooks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, it's just like, I think it brings us back to this, Radley Balco has, has written about this so extensively, but this like over-militarization of you know, standard American police departments. And we see that being used in things like no-knock raids, this excessive, excessive force yeah. being used to break into people's houses in the middle of the night. Sometimes these people are like lawful gun, owner, gun right. owners who think it's an invasion, not right. by the cops, and act accordingly. And then that gets into this whole thicket that they must wade through, um, you know, provided they're not killed by the cops first. Yeah. But like, you know, we have to begin to question is this level of militar militarization of standard police departments an appropriate thing to do, and does it change the incentives? Right, and does it keep anybody any safer? I think is a question a lot of Americans are asking right now. Um, well, we will have more rising for you after this. Senators Bernie Sanders and Lindsey Graham went head-to-head -head in a live Fox Nation debate moderated by Brett Baer yesterday. Ahead of the debate, Bayer said, quote, it's really exciting. You can't think of two senators who are more ideologically split apart. Sanders called out Graham for being part of the establishment. Surprise, surprise. Let's take a look at that. What you don't hear him talking about are, in fact, the most important issues facing this country. That's what the establishment does. Lindsay is a very good and effective representative of the establishment. Does Lindsay have the concern that we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people? that some 60,000 people a year die because they don't get to a doctor on time. I didn't, I didn't hear much about that in that opening statement. You got three Wall Street firms now, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, who control $20 trillion in assets. They control hundreds and hundreds of corporations throughout this country. Bottom line is we are moving toward oligarchy. You know, it feels good, I gotta say. <laughs> Just in, the left, I will, I will say, has a lot of criticisms from Bernie at this point. There's a lot of frustration. It's not exactly the raw, raw coalition that existed back in 2016 or even 2020. But to hear just someone go on TV and talk top down instead of left, right, and to not just say they're not talking about the important issues and then pivot to something like, um, you know, in Trump's 1-6 response, he says, they're not talking about the important issues. The elites don't want you to talk about important issues and then talks for 12 pages about 1-6 himself. It's nice to hear someone who seems to be talking in good faith about mass wealth aggregation at the top of the pie, about the fact that wages are in decline, that we are the wealthiest country in the world that doesn't have health care access for everybody, that whether or not you can get treatment is contingent on how much money is in the bank, and all of these really basic human rights issues that, frankly, the majority of Americans agree about it felt it felt like a, a flashback in the best of ways to me. I don't know how how did you feel about it? <laughs> um, I think we are we are we are night and day on this issue. <laughs> I mean, it always really really bothers me when I hear people like Sanders or Ocasio Cortez talking about the the need for um, universal health care, not means tested, universal health care, uh, things we we sort of attempted to do in a piecemeal manner with Obamacare. Um, 
but they're not actually properly identifying the culprit, the real problem at the heart of this, which is employer-tied healthcare, which is something that we started in the 40s. Oh, Bernie talks about that all started, the time. He does a little bit, but that's not the solution that he ultimately, like, he doesn't propose the solution explicitly of like, oh, we need to unbundle healthcare coverage from employment, which I think would be a much easier that's partisan a, lift. That's, that's a much more agreeable <laughs> point. That's, that's literally Medicare for all. That's the whole point of it. And one of the things that he advocated for when he did his <laughs> Medicare not, no, for no, all it's debate. It's that, it's unbundling these things plus making universal healthcare, right? Like it's 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 a two-step thing that Bernie's advocating well, for. What's the, if we got rid of employer-based healthcare, absolutely. how would you glad imagine you, people? Glad you asked, absolutely. I mean, a uh, total, uh, marketplace for people to be able to shop for insurance uh, plans that fit that their needs. And as well as I think this could be something that really forces some transparency. Uh, you know, you actually have the, there's a surgery center in Oklahoma. This is like the most dorky libertarian thing ever. There's a surgery center in Oklahoma where they have a a la carte price list and you get to know exactly how much uh, your insur- your your surgeries are going to cost and you get to budget and plan accordingly. Um, as and opposed I'm, to- And if I'm poor, if I don't have any money. Well, the good thing about this is that the prices are actually so much cheaper than you would actually find at a, at a standard hospital because you go to a hospital and you ask, how much is this procedure going to run me? Could I at least have an itemized bill? And they say no in a lot of but, cases. But what if don't I don't know. have any money? Well, I mean, and yes, that's why you buy your insurance on the private marketplace, and that well, allows you to be able to shop and to decide what well, type of The concern is that plan. people can't afford insurance. Yes. But, I mean, you, they can't afford it right now. Absolutely. Right. Well, but here, here's the concern, Liz. Forty <laughs> percent of Americans can't afford a four hundred dollar emergency. Yes, we're in a country that has a lot of folks concerned about declining birth rates. A lot of people specifically are concerned about declining white birth rates. That's their bag. Yeah, not that's mine. a whole other thing, right? Like, that's <laughs> the, like a. The point of the matter, even if that is you, you know, not you, but like <laughs> even if that is what some viewer is concerned about, how do you know my baby's white? <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, even if that, if that, I don't even know. (laughs) Such a trip. But but even if that were your concern, I don't understand how we can have a country where people are, you know, pro-life, where they want people to have the ability to give birth. And at the same time, it costs thousands of dollars to have the simplest thing in the world, the most natural thing in the world, like childbirth. I had someone call and I do a a call-in show the other night and I had a caller from South Africa call and ask, like, really concerned. Hey, mm-hmm. just some clarification on your healthcare system. You're telling me that if I injure myself or if I get cancer and I go into the hospital and I just happen to not to have any money to my name, I'm like SOL, like I'm just in, up, mm-hmm. up, up the creek. I'm trying to come up with an expression without cursing <laughs> in them, but they all have cursing yeah. in them. But I'm just up the creek without a paddle. Like, mm-hmm. what am I supposed to do? And I explained to him, yeah, in fact, in America, some people come out of the hospital with these going huge debt. Yeah. debt burdens just from giving birth. And he was stunned into silence over it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what do you make of that? I, I make of that. I think I think people on the left uh, really discount and, and for whatever reason, um, almost aren't willing to entertain the idea that creating a private marketplace like we do for so many other industries, right? Like the most bloated um, industries with the least pricing transparency are but like far and away college tuition in this country and medical, like the, the amount That's that we pay for medical services. Yeah. And so I look at these two issues and I think look, like, what is the common thread between them? Because both, not, neither of these are things that I'm happy with, right? They're, they're huge problems and they affect almost everyone. Um, and I look at what the common thread is and I think, oh my God, there's a ton of bureaucratic and administrative bloat and there's not very much there's transparency. An, well, hold on. And, and there's not very yeah. much transparency in terms of how much we pay for these things. We don't actually understand fully 
here's the service being rendered, and here's how much it costs to provide this, and here's the cut that this institution is taking. And uh, the way that, that these, these institutions, uh, especially hospitals, are, are enabled to do this type of thing is because we have this system of crazy intermediaries as sure. opposed to actually, like I cannot go to Lenox Hill where I'm going to be giving birth and ask them for you know an itemized list in advance of, of giving birth for how much different procedures will cost me so that I can budget. Yeah. And I'm somebody who can absorb those costs if, if the medical bill ends up to be being way higher than I anticipate it being, I'm somebody who can handle that. A lot of people are not in that same economic situation and cannot do so, Indeed. and I want them to be empowered to be able to do so. Well, and I think that will drive prices down across the board. So you're right that 15 to 25% of all healthcare costs are administrative waste. It's also true that in countries that do have universal healthcare systems or nationalized healthcare systems, mm -hmm. they pay less for healthcare and they get full coverage. Unlike us, we pay twice what as much. What do you mean by full coverage specifically? They go to the hospital, they don't have to pay. Uh -huh. And they, and they pay obviously upfront out of taxes. Procedures. So the idea is we are yeah. all paying healthcare premiums, insurance, yeah. people are paying at the emergency room, hospitals are absorbing these care for emergency procedures for yes. people who don't have the health insurance. Mm -hmm. The total healthcare spending in America per patient is twice as high, it twice is. as high in some of these other countries, despite us not actually being getting the coverage we want. So yeah. we have a lot of people who we avoid people coverage. We charge extra and then we fail to deliver. We deliver half as much. Right. Order. And so yeah. a lot of the cost, to your point, is because of these private intermediaries. It is the mm -hmm. administrative cost of having to do billing and also the profits that are going to the healthcare industry. That, I, mean, don't that just, I don't think it's fair to fully categorize them as private intermediaries. One of the big problems that we have in this is that we have so many different players. We have pharmaceutical companies. We have pharmaceutical um, hospital administrators. Are insurance companies. We have the premiums being negotiated between insurance companies and hospitals. That's absolutely part of the problem. We have physicians who are frankly like, I mean, they're handsomely paid in this country. I think that's an interesting sort of uh, line of, of question to go down. I of, think like, that that's interesting as well, especially since a lot of that is motivated by their yeah. high student debt burden. So all of these things, I completely agree, are intertwined. And there are yeah. some fundamental problems there. But you can't look at this problem of people not being able to afford health care and say the answer is to have people just pay out of pocket without the support even. I, I'm against... But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying dismantling, like un unbundling employment right. and health care and, and having a private insurance marketplace where people I, I was getting there plans, legitimately because that's so different than Employer-based health care is pernicious because it, it forces you to have to rely on an employer to get support for health care costs that mm -hmm. for most people without an employer are basically unsupportable. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the answer is to get rid of employer-based health care, which is support for people to, to contribute to the financing of their employment without having someone else to support them and their ability to pay for insurance. So I agree that it's a silly system to couple it with your employer because obviously when you get sick, your employment is compromised. That's exactly the time where oftentimes you aren't able to work. You're getting treatment for sometimes, sometimes something that is very grave or you're Absolutely. home with your baby or whatever it is. That's a grave but, condition. Becoming a mother is a grave condition. Well, sorry. You know what I mean. No, no, no. It really is. It sounds but, depressing. But the, the point of the matter is, and again, this isn't something that is especially controversial these days. I'm glad to say that the majority of Americans agree at this point that just like we have Social Security, just like Which we have- Which is terribly managed, by the way, and you know, maybe- Yeah, because Republicans have intentionally defunded it and tried to um, basically- have funding requirements, advanced funding requirements for it in a way that no other spending program does so that they can fear monger about there being these debt cliffs periodically and make people feel like it's not a sustainable program when it really is. And we, we can go into that. And Bernie Sanders has talked 
ad nauseum about that as well. But challenge, I challenge you or any you know conservative, libertarian, anybody to try to attack Social Security. Joe Biden tried at one point, Barack Obama tried at one point, and the public outcry is huge because people rely on these kinds of programs. People rely on Medicare, and whether though, though there are substantive criticisms of it, it is also one of the most popular, if not the most popular government program there is. And before we had it, it is, right? old Checks. people were dying in the street. Yeah, I mean, of course Social Security and of course Medicare are, are, are popular programs, right? Like any situation where, especially one of my big issues with social security is the degree to which it's not means tested. So, I mean, what we have is we have wealthy old people who have been saving for their retirement for, for years and years and years who now get handsome checks from well, the government. I, I agree when we're in a situation in the other direction because people who are very <laughs> affluent, there's a cap on how much you pay into social security Absolutely. and more wealthy people should be paying into it. And that would help resolve some of the funding issues as well. It seems like we, we have a fundamental difference of opinion in terms of the federal government's competence at managing and administering these programs. And so that definitely leads me to wanting people to have more choice and more ability to go and seek these options out on the private marketplace because I just look at the degree to which this is unfeasible. No, because <laughs> I, I don't think we have a difference in the competence of the, of the government. My concern when I'm talking to conservatives and libertarians is that they want to talk about the critique of the government, which I'm happy to talk about. They never want to talk about the fact that the private industry is what's driving a lot of the corruption and the, the lack of transparency, the inability to negotiate with drug prices, that's all lobbying efforts from the private industry, not the government's doing. I think it's really important, as I mentioned before, to sort out all of the different stakeholders and all the different components here, because to just cast it all as public malfeasance or private malfeasance is really missing part of the picture and a huge uh, thing that contributes to these absolutely enormous costs, which I think we both agree are way too high and impossible for people to really prepare for, um, are the fact that there are so many different stakeholders engaging in all kinds of different, sometimes very malicious tactics in order to drive up prices or in order to pull the wool over consumers' eyes to make it so they don't right. actually know and how I much they're on the hook for. And I don't think that allowing the private sector to have carte blanche reign over exploiting people for profit is the way to get the profit out of the healthcare system. This was illuminating. <laughs> I know we could go all on and on, but the producers are in our ear telling us we got to go. But we will have we'll more rising. We'll do another rising. segment soon. <laughs> we, we definitely should. We'll have more rising for you right after this. <laughs> The World Health Organization is recommending in its strongest terms that a deeper investigation is needed to determine how the COVID-19 virus originated and if it was indeed accidentally leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. This comes after nearly two years of mainstream media marring the lab leak theory as a conspiracy. Reporter at U.S. Right to Know, Emily Kopp, joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Emily. Hey, great to be here. All right. So this does feel like a, a significant pivot. You know, I spoke a week or so ago to the, the man who is heading Lancet Medical Journal's investigation into this. And even people who, you know, like Jeffrey Sachs, who are, you know, more established, you know, you might call them establishment figures, are leading this cause here. So wh why the shift? What's going on right now? Yeah, this might seem like a total 180 um, if you haven't been paying close attention to this story. So just for background here, this is the scientific advisory group for the origins of novel pathogens. It's a new advisory group um, under the World Health Organization that Director General Tedros set up after that first mission to Wuhan um, came back with the conclusion that a lab origin was extremely unlikely. And Director General Tedros essentially said, we don't have enough evidence to rule it out yet. Um, and he sort of questioned the credibility of his, 
own organization's report, which was remarkable. Um, so he set up this new advisory group. Um, and I think what is pretty refreshing here is that in a debate that has really been dominated by two global superpowers, right, China and the US, both with their own interest in taking attention away from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, we have this new group that pulls from experts from two dozen different countries. And it also pulls from expertise outside of virology because, you know, virologists have a lot of great knowledge and have a lot to bring to this debate. But, you know, let's get real. They have a bias towards the hypothesis that does not implicate the field of virology. So what resulted is really a report that I think offers one of the most balanced view of the evidence that um, that we've got so far. And the reason for the 180 is really, um, I think a lot of circumstantial evidence has surfaced since, um, you know, the WHO's first report. And we also have gotten some new information on just how shallow and politically compromised that first um, you know, February 2021 report was. Tell us a little bit about this emerging evidence and tell us also a little bit about how it really casts some doubt on the evidence that we'd sort of formerly been been using and referencing to determine the veracity of this. Um, what new things have emerged, Emily? Sure, yeah, so there are, like I said, sort of two important elements here, right? So we learned in new detail just how politically compromised that first mission to Wuhan, China was. In what way? Um, so for, Do you mind going into some detail about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we learned essentially that the United States was asked to nominate a few people to serve as investigators. Um, and according to Brett Girard, who was um, part of the Trump administration's pandemic response, he testified to Congress that the U.S. had nominated career bureaucratic you know, scientists from FDA, CDC, and NIH. Instead, who is put on this mission, but um, Peter Daszak, who is the president of the Eco Health Alliance, which is this controversial nonprofit that sort of serves as an intermediary between the NIH and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So that's a significant conflict of interest, right? And there are real questions about what went on behind the scenes that led him to be, you know, the US delegate there. Um, you know, and we also learned from Peter Ben Embarek, who was the chair of this earlier mission, that um, essentially the only way that they could get the lab hypothesis into the final report was by saying it was extremely unlikely. The choice that Chinese authorities presented the team with apparently was either don't mention it at all or say it was extremely unlikely. Yeah. That is yeah. what he told um, a Danish documentary. He has since said that that was mistranslated, but hasn't offered many further details. But it certainly cast doubt on, on the report. You would almost think that these sort of um, potentially in bed with Trump, uh, possibly hackish partisans would be uh, more interested in spreading a, a Chinese lab leak theory than as opposed to less. Uh, what do you make of that sort of odd um, you know, not not exactly inconsistency, but that's like a funny wrinkle that sort of doesn't comport with how I think that would go. What do you make of that? So the politics around this in, uh, around this issue are um, quite interesting and um, quite complex. I think I think um, Republicans have been 
more consistent, um, certainly than Democrats, in pushing for an investigation into the possibility that um, you know the Wuhan Institute of Virology could have experienced the lab accident that ignited the pandemic. Um, the complexity comes from the fact that the National Institutes of Health was funding um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, um, you know, rank and file Republicans in the House are pretty interested in looking at this because, you know, Anthony Fauci has become, um, you know, a, a uh, figure on the right that gets a lot of scorn. And so that is politically um an advantage for them. But there are, you know, plenty of people, I think, sort of in the rank and file um, in the US government who would prefer to not dig deeper here. Um, and that's been out by a lot of great investigative reporting. So, well, we're two years out from this now. And I've heard some people say that this is all well and good, that they want to start doing comprehensive, substantive investigations now. But it's a little late in a lot of the evidence that might have been collected that pointed one way or the other about the origins of COVID-19 might be long gone. Can you give us a sense of what the expectations are about what this kind of new investigation is going to be like and what kind of fruit they expect it to bear? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, So this group is not dedicated to conclusively identifying the origins of COVID. It's sort of meant to lay out a roadmap of future studies. But Mm. as you said, you know, a lot of the data has been lost. However, you can still do retrospective studies um, on, you know, serology. So testing the blood, say, of wildlife farmers and seeing if that might have been a route. Um, There are also scientists working really hard to find new um, genetic data. So helping to fill out the phylogenetic tree and discover more about how the virus evolved. And of course, you know, us at US Right to Know are digging into what sort of gain of function research might have been going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, that could have made a bat coronavirus more um, apt to infect humans and cause a pandemic. Um, so there's still a lot that we can dig into here. I think what's really sort of tragic is that um, Chinese scientists have been cultivating expertise in SARS-like viruses for almost 20 years now, and they are certainly best positioned to do these sort of studies. But unfortunately, because of political considerations in that country, um, they are not able to do that work. And um, that's definitely more not in their Yeah, it's really despicable how, I mean, we have excellent Chinese scientists um, you know, doing, like you said, really impressive work in this field of virology, and yet the the CCP is really hindering the degree to which we can actually rely on data that's coming from there, and really stymieing a lot of this, which I think I think erodes uh, the, the scientists' credibility and really takes away from their accomplishments. It's like such a clear and obvious example to me of authoritarian state power, uh, you know, really impeding uh, the incredible work of people on the ground. Um, who in many cases are not corrupt scientists and they're not in bed with the CCP and absolutely want to be doing the right thing. And yet, you know, it's really, really hard for us to even investigate this because of, you know, Chinese authoritarianism and the degree to which people are really stymieing the free flow of information to the U.S. Yeah, and I think another interesting part of the report that came out last week is that Director General Tedros wrote two letters to China asking for updates on the science that had conducted since the first report. 
and they were not addressed to the head of the Chinese Academy of Scientists. Uh, they were not addressed to the head of the Chinese CDC. It was to politicians. Um, so it seems clear to me that they are the um, barrier here. And Emily, am I right to, to have been told uh, to understand that there's also been a lot of um, you know, barriers, a lot of hesitancy from American labs that have been doing this research in concert with the, the Wuhan labs from releasing data on what exactly they were doing stateside as well? Certainly, yes. Um, we, we shouldn't only criticize um, you know, obstruction by Chinese authorities. The NIH has been less than forthcoming about um, genomic data that could help fill out this story, and they've been less than transparent about those grant reports um, you know, that could help us better understand what sort of research EcoHealth Alliance was um, funding you know, via NIH uh, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, so, so yeah, let's be equal in our, our criticism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, though it is good news that we don't have like a great firewall or, you know, CCP tyrants preventing the, the spread of information. But absolutely, I mean, more accountability and transparency as much as possible is the ideal. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Emily. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'll have more rising after this. The New York Times has obtained and published previously never before seen photos of the first prisoners detained at Guantanamo Bay. Taken in early 2002, the photos were intended to give senior military leadership a closer look at the prison's detention and interrogation operations. The Times reports that if taken by news photographers today, these images of Guantanamo would not clear the base's current censorship policy. Hmm. Just this week, legislation cutting $100 billion from the country's defense budget was introduced by Democratic representatives Mark Pocan and Barbara Lee. Pocan said in a statement, quote, the amount of money the defense industry uh, convinces Congress to spend each year doesn't protect us from real threats like climate change, pandemics, or cyber attacks. It only lines contractors' pockets. Just imagine for once if we let the world in funding peace and not war. Yeah, so these... Photographs were revealing in part because it's the first time we've seen these kind of pictures. Um, and there were the subtext, the political context of these was really interesting. So there was one photograph that people were talking about where one of the guards had put a flag in the blindfolded, um, handcuffed a prisoner's hand. And it was really evocative of, you know, the pictures we got out of Abu Ghraib and kind of the misconduct that was happening there. And now all of these, you know, 20 plus years out when so few people, it's like a number in the teens that have actually been prosecuted. There's mm -hmm. been so little to come of it. It was such an outrage in earlier election cycles. I remember when I was in college, this was it was it was like the the crux of a lot of our political activism and resistance um, to the Bush administration, but it still persists, um, and that there doesn't seem to be the kind of political engagement around this issue that there used to be. Obama ran on qu closing Guantanamo. To have these pictures come out now is a kind of stark reminder of how little things have changed. Oh, absolutely, and it's also a stark reminder of the incredible short-term memory problem we have in yeah. politics, where like we have. Um, some really horrific evil, evils uh, perpetrated by the U.S. government, e even to this day, and people deprived of, of their due process and deprived of their day in court. Uh, and yet, for whatever reason, uh, 
people don't really care about this too much. Uh, and, and honestly, this is, I think, a testament to the power of photojournalism to some degree, because I was also, when researching this segment a little bit, I was noticing that Time magazine also sent some photojournalists to cover um, you know, what limited things they could access at Guantanamo, I think around 2013. And I mean, the photos that emerged from that, although they, they didn't have as many people in them, you know, we're talking six by eight foot uh, metal cages kept outdoors, almost akin to what you'd see at a dog kennel yeah. or a municipal animal shelter. Yeah. Um, there's something absolutely striking about these images, and it's horrifying that they sort of they capture the public imagination for a very short amount of time, but it isn't something that sort of lingers in our political discourse today. Yeah, it does feel like a, a bigger problem politically that our appetite for sticking with a story for a long time is little to none. I mean, during the Trump years, liberals lamented that they didn't seem to be able to get a story to stick. Part of it does seem to me about the, to be rooted in this distrust of the media culture more broadly. Yeah. That, you know, why it's about who you trust as a figurehead as opposed to the underlying story because people's news sources are so bifurcated at this point and there's an almost defensiveness and I feel this myself and I have to respond to it and try to get myself in line a defensiveness to want to defend your position because the stakes seem so high and there's mm-hmm. very little in terms of like having a conversation about how we want our country to run and what we want the world to look like and how we can build toward those kinds of shared goals because I do think there are a great deal of um national values that we do share and people see see pictures like this that do seem to be objective evidence and do have a lot of simpatico about distaste for the fact that that's what our country is up to. I mean, I think this is actually something that I will absolutely give the Biden administration just a little bit of credit on uh, when I think about the possibility of perhaps some Pentagon spending being cut, when I think about um, the admittedly imperfect uh, withdrawal that we saw in what month was it? August yeah. from Afghanistan? Yeah, was, the Afghanistan withdrawal, I believe, in August um, of <laughs> yeah. last year, uh, which was, I think it's fair to say that it was it was botched in some ways. Um, but also, when you actually consider what was the quote-unquote right way to do that, how could that have been executed perfectly, I think it's, it's fair to give Biden some credit for the fact that he at least delivered on this promise. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that people, I mean, the GOP is pretty horrible on this. Honestly, a lot of Democrats are really horrible on this. They will sometimes talk a big talk about the anti-war cause. And I will give Biden some credit where due for saying, hey, look, the cost, um, the fiscal cost and the cost in human lives and the cost in intervention that's really not working to actually stabilize the situation. It's it's time for us to stop bearing those costs. It is interesting. You know, we did a segment earlier about inflation and gas prices and root causes and what to do about it. And the elephant in the room is the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Yeah. And despite the urgency expressed by the Democratic Party and their understanding that they have to do something lest they get completely demolished in midterms, that urgency doesn't seem to come up to having any kind of conversation about how to end that conflict more quickly. Instead, if anything, the interests of the defense industry seem to be prevailing there with Joe Biden going to give speeches down at the Lockheed Martin plant and sending off missiles and things that are calibrated not to end the conflict as much as to extend the conflict, mm-hmm. at least according to some of the experts that we've talked to on this show and that I've talked to elsewhere. And it is fascinating to me that as much urgency as there is around gas prices, the defense budget and military spending seems to be this untouchable quantity, even mm-hmm. if it means that Democrats get wiped out. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely a problem that's very endemic to American politics. And I think we see it, it would be to Biden's credit if he began to sort of stem some of the flow of defense contractor money and influence in our politics. But um you know, I will take what I can get in terms of Afghanistan <laughs> withdrawal and frankly, in yeah. terms of the decent amount of restraint that has been shown thus far when it comes to Ukraine and Russia from the U.S. perspective. But at the same time, like all of those things are subject to change. And I am not particularly optimistic that there's any sort of prevailing massive anti-war sentiment uh, in the U.S. that has any sort of like durable staying power. This no, is something that only like people on the very fringes of the left the and like civil libertarians yeah. feel strongly about, but the vast majority of people just are fairly neocon, fairly hawkish. It's, it's odd. I found myself in a situation over the weekend where I was having a very pleasant conversation with you know a stranger at, at the dog park and Ukraine, Russia came Park, up. Karen? Was it Amy Cooper? <laughs> no, it was. It was. It was local, and you know, it was. She was nice, and I got the sense of it was someone who shared my politics. Yeah. But even like the whiff of like I forget even how it came up, but oh, uh, potential um, uh, hunger, mm-hmm. uh, famine globally as a consequence of the Europe's breadbasket being um, held up in conflict, and there was an attribution of. The cause and effect of, oh, isn't it horrible? The global south is going to have to deal with this because Russia won't give the grain. And I was like, well, it's a little that the West is wanting the rest of the world to adhere to these sanctions, even if it means that their people starve. And is this really their conflict? And I found myself having all this hesitation about even getting into that kind of a conversation because of how polarizing these conversations are and how uniformly, regardless of people's left-right political orientation, there is this real commitment to being rah-rah for this war effort because it's been framed as this humanitarian crisis, which I understand and it is a humanitarian crisis, but there's asymmetry between how this humanitarian crisis is being addressed versus other ones and the, you know, the, the proliferation of Ukraine flags and this real sense of identity around this particular war effort that is really in contrast with the kind of anti-war movement I would expect to see in a moment like this. And we've seen the flimsiest possible engagement um, with a lot of the Russian Ukraine stuff. I mean, we saw this with sort of the widespread cancellation of anything with Russia in the name. Yeah. Um, you know, I actually covered this story for a reason uh, yesterday, a cancel culture situation uh, at a Bushwick bar where there was going to be this interesting food politics talk, uh, talking about how Putin was actually sort of co-opting Stalin tactics. Mm. Um, but the fact that Russia and Ukraine were in the title proved to be too, I mean, I spicy. hate the word triggering, but oh. you know, like spicy for, <laughs> for a decent number of, of Brooklynites. And it actually really deprived people of the yeah. opportunity to understand this issue with greater depth. It's like people are much more interested in ensuring that Disney and Warner Brothers, you know, don't do theatrical releases in Russia or that Russia House in DuPont Circle changes yes. its name. Yes. Like, it's, it's, it's people are so much more interested in this posturing as opposed to actually having any sort of deeper and prolonged long understanding yeah. of the dynamics at play here. And Russia and Ukraine have a really, really fascinating history. So yeah. I implore our viewers to sort of be part of the solution there and actually um, begin to understand these things with more depth. Tomorrow on Rising, Robbie will be back with you all. Uh, I had a great time filling in, though. It was really good to have you. I enjoyed these chats. You know, <laughs> women be talking. We could go all day. I, I love, I really did enjoy this, though, Liz. You're going to get canceled. <laughs> Come on. Whatever. Whatever. I can handle it. Welcome to my first rodeo. Look, you guys should be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of this content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go. We are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So thank you, and we'll see you tomorrow.